May 19, 1990, was a Saturday. And I, I woke up early that morning, and I, and I woke up, and it was at that moment that I began to understand kind of the nervousness that occurs when you get married. The, the night before was our rehearsal dinner, and, uh, and, you know, we had all that fun. We had the rehearsal and then the dinner and party afterwards, and we had a great time and laughed. And I wasn't nervous that night before at all, though. I, I, didn't, I didn't lay in bed going, tomorrow's the day. You know, and worry about it, figure out all these things. I, I just went to bed and went right to sleep. I was wiped out. And, uh, and then early in the morning, I woke up wide awake. And, and, I, and, and in that moment, that day, I began to kind of feel the weight and the, and the meaning of what was happening that day. So I, I got up and, and I got ready for the big event. And the time came to start. And the, the pastor and the, my groomsmen... Uh, the, the, and I, we all walked out from the side over here in the side of the, of the church where we were. And, and, uh, and, and in our, uh, by the way, I mean, in our wedding party, we had like 400 groomsmen and bridesmaids. Not really, we had 12, six on each side. So it was a big, big uh, group of people. And we were just standing up there, the groomsmen and I, and we're all lined up and the candles are all lit. And, the, and I'm telling you, I mean, the thing is on, you know, it's here. We're, we're in it now. And we got married in a, in a church in Independence, Missouri. It has a really, really high ceiling, you know, kind of, you've seen those kind of church buildings. And it has one long uh, center aisle going down in the, the middle of the church. And so I'm standing up the, in front with, with, with these other guys up here and the pastor. And, and then the bridesmaids, they start coming in at 0.1 miles per hour. You know what I'm talking about? And, you know, they're, they're taught that. They're like, think window shopping. Window shopping, window. I mean, they're just creeping along, and and uh, and they they they're just going so slow, and they're just sauntering, and there's and there's so many of them that it's just taking forever, you know, because they're in there. They're they're told this is not a race. Just just go slow, do all this sort of stuff, and and it's taking forever because there's so many of them, and each one of them, every one of them is coming down, and as they get to the front, they sort of catch my eye, and with that look, there's just that look that they say, they just with their eyes, they say, she's coming, and she's beautiful, and and in in my heart, I'm just like, I know, hurry, would you? Can you start coming down in clusters or something? Just do something to speed this up, and so anyway, they make their way down, and they all line up, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've been there. All of a sudden, the music changes. And, uh, and it, it starts with, you know, the dun, 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 you know, and everybody, in that moment, everybody, when the music changes, everybody stands up and everybody cranes their neck and tries to see. And, and, and there, suddenly, in the back of the room, was my bride. And I mean to tell you, I'm just telling you, she was beautiful. She was, I mean, I've always been attracted to Julie. I still think she's, she's uh, just as, uh, as beautiful as she ever was. But I'm just telling you, that day, on that wedding day, with that gown on, she was just even more beautiful than ever. And I remember standing in that moment and just trying to drink it all in. Because, you know, I, I don't want to miss out on deep things and big moments. And, you know, for me... Uh, standing there that day, this was the only moment I'm getting here because I'm getting one marriage. I, 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 Julie and I were both were just fiercely committed to that idea, and so I just wanted to drink it in. And it was it was all such a beautiful day. And but here's the truth: weddings for me up until that day 
Up until that moment, weddings had always been just like a whipping for me. You know, I mean, have you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? You know what I'm talking about? Where it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And that, that's what weddings were like for me. And, and I could probably say for a lot of guys here, it's the same kind of deal. But, you know, it's the same four songs that they sang. You know, and the, 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 the songs change over seasons of time. But everybody uses the same songs and the same kind of place. And, and it's the same dresses and the same tuxes. It's all the same. And I know, I know all the girls are in there here say, it's not the same dresses. Well, but for us, I'm speaking solely as for the majority of males it's just a white dress. I mean, we don't, we don't notice all the details you have, and I'm probably getting in trouble now. So we don't know that. But to me, it was just always the same kind of deal over and over and over again. Same song, same candles, same rituals. And for me, there was, before that day, there was never a lot of weight in it, not a lot of meaning in it. However, after experiencing my own wedding and, and taking time to think about its meaning, it's, it's different now. Now, when I go to a wedding and when I... When I hear somebody getting married, I, I, I sometimes think about every scripture about how Christ tells us, it tells us that Christ is the groom and that we're his bride. You know, like Ephesians 5 and the book of Revelation talks some about that. And Song of Solomon, I mean, that's all Solomon, Song of Solomon is about. Um, and they, and they, they all tell me that what happened in that moment, on that day, on my wedding day, went beyond what just happened in that moment. So when, when I saw my bride, beautiful, radiant, unbelievably attractive, perfect, I now understand that scriptures teach that's how God views me. Radiant, beautiful, spotless, perfect. And, and that day there, there was such pleasure in my heart on that day as, as I watched my soon-to-be wife uh, walking down the aisle and the scriptures tell me that, that God takes pleasure. That's the same way that, that God takes pleasure in me. And I try to unpack that and try to understand that in those kind of moments. And, and that day, on that day, you know, there's all kinds of rituals we do in a wedding. Like that day we exchange these rings. And, you know, there's nothing magical about the rings. It wasn't like one ring to control them all, you know, all that kind of thing. It was just a ring. And, you know, ours was gold. Yours might be white gold or yours might be plastic. I don't know where, I don't know where you are or where you were in the moment you got married or anything. But, but, but it's just a ring. There's nothing actually magical about it. But even though, even though the ring, we understand that it's a symbol and it stood for purity and it stood for the symbolic and it was symbolic for the never-ending, uh, undefiled nature of marriage. They're, they're actually more than just rings and even more than, than just a symbol. You know, I, I think of, when I think about symbols and things, I think about Israel going across the, the Jordan River. And when they got to the other side, God told them, He said, now I want you to get 12 st stones, one for each tribe of Israel. And I want you to stack, I want you to grab those stones from the riverbed as you're going across. And I want you to stack them up. And that way... When your kids are walking by and they say, hey, why are those rocks all piled up right in that spot? You tell them what I did today. And I think about that and I realize that the ring is more than just a symbol of purity and never-ending love. But the ring that I wear on my finger is actually a monument of all that God has done. Not just in bringing Julie and I together, but in what bringing Julie and I together is a picture of. And that's God, God's pursuit of us. 
So God, over and over and over and over and over again, in, in these things that we see and these things that are part of our lives, he writes these things on creation for us so that we have, that, and they all have these layers of meaning to them, like, like marriage, you know, man and woman coming together. That's God's idea, and he's trying to paint something on creation, trying to help us to see something and understand something that we didn't understand before. And so God is saying, okay, how I want to, them to know my love. I want to show my love for them. How can I show it to him? And he says, I know I'll do it this way. And he creates a marriage and he writes this sort of this play on our, our lives and in creation for you and me to look at and begin to understand, okay, that's the picture of how Christ loves me. And he's, and he's done that all throughout history. Hebrews teaches us that the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments are pictures that help point us toward Christ. And, and you think about the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're not complex, are they? They're simple and easy to understand, aren't they? I mean, in fact, I, I've taught my, my daughters the Ten Commandments their entire lives. You, you have too, I'm sure. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet other people's stuff, you know, don't kill your sister, whatever it might be. You, 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 you may want to stay away from your neighbor's wife. That was not one we didn't teach. We didn't teach them when they were two because they're like, I don't know what you're talking about there. But, but you know, there, there are no other gods, so don't worship idols. They're just basic, everyday rules. They're very simple they're not complex. Are we agreed with that? They're, they're, they're not complex. You agree with me on that? And yet, and yet all of us have failed miserably at keeping them. All of us. And even if you have kept them well, the scripture, as we've learned in the recent weeks, the, tells us that the law made nothing perfect. So even if you could keep them all, your soul would still not be set free, much like the alcoholic who, who's not drinking, but everything inside of him wants to drink. That guy is not free. In fact, he's in just as much hell as he was while he was drinking. Maybe, maybe in some ways even more. We said last week that the tabernacle was a picture of a greater reality in which you and I have been created to live. And remember the tabernacle had three parts, three places. Do you remember this? We talked about it last week. There was the outer court and then there was the holy place. And then past that there was the holy of holies. And the picture for us was that we were created to live in a, in a world of matter. You know, a place of the senses. A place that we would, where we could touch and smell and see and hold and feel things. And then there's the world of the mind, and then there's the world of the spirit. And we usually do very, very well in the worlds of matter and the world, and the world of, the, of the mind, but we tend to struggle in the world of the spirit. And we need somebody to unlock the door to the world of the spirit, the place where we can find healing and wholeness for our lives. So Jesus came, and he tore the veil in two in the, in the temple, and he unlocked the door for us. And, he's, and he said to us, and we've talked about this in recent weeks, he said, I gave you the law, even though I knew you would fail at it. I, I gave it to you knowing you would fail at it so that when I finally came, you'd be ready for a savior. And, and after trying so hard to do everything right and failing, which we have all done repeatedly in our lifetimes, or even if you kept the law perfectly, but you still are so empty and broken. He said, I did it and gave it to you so that you'd be ready for a savior when I came. You'd be ready for healing. And we talked last week, one of the most important things for us to learn is that Jesus doesn't want us to conform to a pattern of religion. He wants to transform us 
by the Holy Spirit of God. And now today in Hebrews 9, we're going to look more at the idea of the tabernacle being a picture that shows us how things are at the deepest level of the universe. So in so doing, he, what we're going to do is we're going to tackle some common misconceptions and some common problems that have occurred historically as men and women have tried to follow Jesus. So let's go. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now verses 1 through 7 are just, just going to unpack what happened in the tabernacle, what the tabernacle was, what was all about. So here we go, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was repaired, excuse me, not repaired, prepared. The first section in which were that lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies in some translations. And, and ha having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a gold urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he's saying there's a lot more to talk about what was going on in the tabernacle, what was happening there. He said, I don't have time to talk about all those, these things. But then verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly. Now that, that word is translated continually in chapter 13. It's what it means, continually. So you can say the priests go regularly or continually into the first section. That's that first part, the, the holy place, the first part of the tabernacle performing their ritual duty. So here's the picture that the author of Hebrews that we're, that we're, we're trying to get into our head, what he's trying to get across to it. The, the, the running of the tabernacle was extremely, extremely busy. There were things that needed to be set up. There was furniture that needed, needed to be put in places, different uh, uh, articles of worship that needed to be taken care of. The, and, and there was always activity going on. It was, it was sort of like a church service that ne would never end. You know, and some of you are like, I've been in a few of those here, Pastor Dave. But, but, uh, but, but it was this constant seven days a week flood of priests coming in and going out because men and women were always coming into the tabernacle trying to find peace for their guilty conscience. And when the consciences of people began to weigh on them, they would go to the tabernacle to try to find help. And, and what he's saying here is that the priests were always working. They were continually working. There was no off time. They were always going 24 hours a day. They, and, 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 you know, so here you can think of it this way. The tabernacle was like an ant pile that's been kicked over. Anybody ever done that? You ever, anybody ever disturbed a fire ant hill? That's, just listen, it's, if, you don't, if you disturb one and you don't know you've disturbed it, that is not a fun experience. I just want to say, I, I discovered fire ants in South Carolina uh, when I went to dig a hole to put up my, my mailbox and I didn't know anything about fire ants when I moved to South Carolina. And in a matter of 20 minutes, I learned everything I needed to know about fire ants because I didn't realize I was digging in a fire ant hill as I was planting that pole there. That was not any fun. I just, but, but, but just, you know, you've seen that when you kick over an ant hill, the ants just come out and they're just going crazy, going all over the place. He said, that's what it was like at the tabernacle. Price, priests were coming in and going out and then offerings were being brought and, and, and sacrifices were being made and all this stuff. So you got, the, got that image, image in your head? And uh, th there was just so much activity going on. It is saying that the tabernacle was constantly open 
and constantly working. And the reason for that is because people were constantly trying to deal with the sin that they were constantly committing. Now, the next part of this text is, is going to argue that, that even though this was going on, the tabernacle was severe, severely deficient in making men whole. Look at verse 7. But into the second, so he, he already talked about the first part, the holy place. Now he's talking about the holy of holies, the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, we're going to get into the deficiencies of this system of coming and trying to, to get our conscience cleansed. And, and that's an important deal. Anybody here ever have a trouble with your conscience? Anybody? Let me, let me see your hand. Yeah, yeah. If, if you didn't raise your hand, then you have no soul. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry to hear that. But anyway, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. We'll get to that. that that's a, that's a, a huge verse, but we, need, we have to keep going before we can explain it. Verse 9, which is what? Symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, so men, men and women are continually coming into the tabernacle to offer these sacrifices but here's the problem. It says, according to the arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. There's the problem. Not does not. It says it cannot perfect the conscience. But, verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So he, he actually, what he does in this chapter, he lists two problems with the tabernacle system in what we just read. We'll go to the second one first, and then the first one second. The first problem with the tabernacle system was that people could bring gifts and, and offerings and sacrifices to try to ease their conscience, but the system was built on the outward man, not on the inward man. And, and so a man could come in and confess to a priest and the priest would say, he would say, man, this is what I did. And the priest would say, man, that's messed up. That's sinful. And he's like, I know, that's why I'm here. And then, the, and then the priest would show him what was right and they would offer a sacrifice. But the problem was the man would then leave the, the place, leave the tabernacle, knowing what was right, but still unable to do it. Knowing what was right, but still unable to do it. The system was flawed in that the man went to the tabernacle to begin with because he knew he sinned. But he would leave just as convicted, just as hopeless, just as broken as he was when he walked into the tabernacle. The problem with the tabernacle system is that it never dealt with the inward weight of guilt and shame that weighs upon the conscience. It never handled the inner man. It, it was all about various washings, about certain things to eat. You know all the rules and the regulations that are in the Old Testament. Certain things not to eat, the clean food, unclean foods. And, and it was all in order to clean up the outside of the man, but it never, ever addressed the inside of a man. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you, you've probably experienced times where you just felt overwhelmed in your own sin. 
and, and, and disgusted at the things that you've done. Anybody ever been to that place? You don't have to raise your hand, but, but most of us have been to that place in our lives where we're just overwhelmed with our own sin. We're disgusted with ourselves. And, and so you come into a place of worship only to hear about how disgusting your sin is. And then you left maybe even feeling more hopeless than you were feeling when you came in. I mean, we walk into a church sometimes where we're like, man, I'm such a screw up. I need Jesus. I, I need to go to church because I've blown this. And you come in and the message sometimes is don't blow this because if you blow this, God's going to get you. And you're like, oh, man, what do I do now? And, and so you leave with a conscience that's even heavier than it was when you came in because you walk out hearing how disappointed God is in you. And you, you leave saying to yourself, man, he must be disappointed in me. He must be really frustrated with me. I don't, I don't know what to do. He's saying that the problem is all the works of the tabernacle did nothing to purify the conscience. So, so men and women would come in and bring offerings and they would bring sacrifices and they'd make these sacrifices, but then they would leave just as broken as they were when they walked in. Now look at verse 9, because in verse 9, that's where I I mentioned to you, it says symbolic. That's where he says that the the tabernacle was a symbol of what was really going on. And and this is the second error, and then we still fall into this. The error uh, was that that the Hebrews made over and over and over and over again, and I'll show you here in a minute with the scriptures how they did this, the error was that they continually elevated symbols to sacred status. And God's going, the symbol isn't the point. It's what's underneath the symbol. It's what it represents. That's the point. That's the part I want you to, to be in awe over, not the symbol itself. But you're making a, a symbol sacred, and the symbol is not sacred. And so over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God rebukes the people of Israel because they treat things that were never intended to be the focal point of worship as if they are sacred. I'll give you an example of how this works out itself in our lives today, and then I'm going to give you some examples from the Old Testament of how, how it played out in their lives. But in our lives today, you know, here's what happens in so many churches across the nation. We have seen, I mean, there have been so many churches I know of that have, that have split over foolish things, and, and you think to yourself, you know, I've, I've known of churches that split over the color of the carpet when they're putting new carpet in. And you think to yourself, how in the world could it, that become so important that the church splits? It's because something that was symbolic or important to somebody got elevated to the level of sacred. And the, and, the, and the church building and the carpeting and the pews and the chairs you sit in can never be viewed as sacred because they're all about pointing to Jesus who is sacred. So here, here's how it plays out. We all have, when you walk with Jesus, if you've been a Christian for some time, we all have these special moments, these very powerful times where God reveals himself to us and in powerful and overwhelming ways. And we, we all have memories of times when God healed us or when God in, encouraged us, when, when God met our need, when, when God just revealed himself in a way that we had never experienced before. We've all had those moments. And those moments are really, really, really powerful for us. And most of us, 
It, because those things, it's like they've been burned to our, into our minds. We can remember where we were, what position we were in, where we, if we were kneeling or standing or lying on the floor and on our face, or we remember that. We remember who was around us. We remember the music that was playing. We remember the instruments that were being used. And we remember the color of the carpet, all of those things. And what happens is years go by and someone comes in and they, be, they say, we're going to change something. But the problem is that thing that they want to change is a part of our memory of that moment with God. And so what happens is that the, the altar that you knelt at becomes sacred to you because when it wasn't really sacred at all. It was, it's meaningful to you, but the God you met there was sacred, not the altar itself. You know, I'm like, it's like I remember uh, when, I was, when I was working on my master's degree at Southeastern University, there was a time when they had to do a, the, the, the chapel at the university was literally falling apart. They had a service they, uh, at the beginning of a chapel service where some equipment literally fell from the ceiling. Thankfully, it didn't land on anybody, but the building was literally falling apart. So they decided to do some work and they remodeled the interior and they had a professor who resigned because they were changing the chapel. Why? It's because he had these memories of significant moments where God did miraculous things in that building. And because of that, he couldn't disassociate what God did in the sacredness of the moment with the building that it happened in. It happens all the time. You know, so we, we, we get all upset because, the, uh, you know, or here's one that was, it's not as big a deal as in, at least in, in a lot of churches, uh, I don't know that it's ever been a big deal here, but, 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 but some places like piano and organ become sacred because you experience God while they were being played. And you remember those moments. I remember, I, uh, well, I wouldn't say, because I don't know if they're going to see it on the live stream. You know, they would, the person who said it would know who said it, so I'm just going to leave that one alone. But, uh, but, 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 or, or, it's, or the style of music, that's another one. The style of music that was playing at, at a moment when you experienced the presence of God in a powerful way, that becomes sacred to you because you, you had this, these significant experiences with God while you were singing those songs. That's why sometimes when you sing an old song, all of a sudden those old emotions stir up and you start to cry again. It's not that suddenly God is there. He was there before you were singing the song. It's just that now you're remembering that specific moment and so it feels sacred to you. But it's the presence of God that's sacred, not the song that you're hearing see that's that's what i'm saying so yeah, i mean years ago if if i would have walked up into a pulpit in, in a lot of churches without a suit and tie dressed like this there would have been people upset and there would have been a group of men wait, waiting for me when i walked off the stage and they'd be saying hey, son uh, god god deserves your best don't you think and i'm like well yeah but this is my nicest shirt this is this is what i got you know and, and there, there there was this idea that god was due reverence i, I even heard a uh, a, a preacher friend of mine one time preached a whole sermon on, on how you should dress for church. And it was all about literal, literally about how you're supposed to dress for church and how important it was to, that you put on your best for God. Well, the whole idea is that God deserves reverence. And I agree that God re deserves reverence. And they'd say, he deserves reverence. So you should have a coat and tie. You should, not, you should wear this and not that and all these things. I understand that God deserves reverence. But we have to understand that reverence has nothing to do with clothes and everything to do with the heart. And so when the issue becomes clothes, 
that, 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 uh, they are elevated, uh, you're elevating the symbol to a sacred and you've negated the whole point. And, and listen, I want to say this, lest you're, you know, 20 something and arrogant. And I want you to know the young crowd does exactly the same thing. Only for you, it's not the piano and organ that's sacred. It's the guitar and drums that are sacred. And the style of dress for you is casual instead of a suit and tie. And you think that any church where people wear a suit and tie is rigid and dead. Listen, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's rigid and dead. And so if you think that, if you act that way, you're walking in the very same sin that you're criticizing the other people for. It's the same kind of mistake that the Hebrews were making. They were going, the tabernacle, tabernacle is sacred, but God was saying the tabernacle was given to you so that you would see deeper realities about me and understand things about me. The tabernacle itself is not sacred in and of itself. It was there to teach. And they did this, elevating the, the, the symbol to sacred over and over and over and over again. And we see it in the Old Testament and we can see it in our lives as well if we'll pay attention. But let me show you some of them from the Old Testament. Keep your finger here, but go back to Psalm 51, verse 16. David is writing this. He said, for you will not delight in sacrifice. Okay, sacrifice. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the tabernacle, right? He's talking about the Old Testament law, the bringing sacrifices in for a sin. Because this is written in response to one of David's great sins, uh, his sin with Bathsheba. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So, so here's what's happening here. Pay, pay attention to this. God is saying, in essence, he's saying, do, do you think I need your bull? Do, do you think I, I, I want your goat? Is that what you think is going on with these sins for your, the sacrifice of your sins? Do you think that you need to provide these things for me because I need to be, a, uh, to be appeased? Do, I'm not having you, he's saying, I'm not having you kill your cows and goats because I need them. I'm trying to get you to understand that your sin is so wicked in front of me that something has to die because of it. I want you to see the horror of your sin. When you walk into the tabernacle and you smell the, the scent of that blood that has been shed, when you, you, you understand the carnage that's taking place there and the death of that animal, he said, the point of it is not that I want the animals. The point of it is not that I, I need you to give something to me. The point of it is I want you to see the horror of your sin. The horror of it. You, you're, you're killing a bull or a goat not because I want them, because, but because I'm trying to burn into your mind and burn into your heart the weight of your sin. And he says, I want brokenness over sin, not a bull on an, on an altar. In other words, God wanted the heart, not the sacrifice. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 13. Actually, just th verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God is saying they are showing reverence to me not because they know me or love me but because some man told them that that's what they should do. 
Now listen, listen to the displeasure of God here because in, in a way it just doesn't make any sense that he would di be displeased with, with them. He's saying, okay, he says, okay, with their lips, they say the right things. They can give all the right answers. They say the right things. They live the right way. But the scripture says, what he says here is that they are only doing them because some man told them to do it. And he said, I'm not interested in that. That's not what I'm after. I'm not after conformity. I'm after transformation. I'm not after you just trying to keep the rules that the preacher talks about. I'm here, I'm, I want you to have your heart transformed by my presence. Now let's go over to Amos chapter 5, and, uh, and I want you to, to see this because really the first two words are unbelievable. They're just amazing. Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 21. He starts off by saying, I hate. Now that's amazing already. Do you know how rare that kind of language is from God? So, so when you hear him say, I hate, you figure... He, he's got to be talking about something absolutely deplorable, you know, like killing babies or something, something really horrific. But he says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. But by, by the way, those are the same festivals, the same feasts, the same assemblies that in Leviticus 23, God tells them, you better do these or I'm going to kill you. So they're doing what God told them to do. And now he's saying, you know what? I hate these things. You're doing what I said, but, but I hate them. Why? Keep reading. I hate, I despise your feast, and I'm, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Oh my goodness. If we would hear this understanding that if my heart is not worshiping God for the right reason, he doesn't care how many worship songs we sing. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So, so God is frustrated and angry that the symbol is being treated as something that is sacred at the expense of what the symbol was there to represent. He's saying, you are, you are uh, worshiping and, and, and treating sacred these feasts, and you're missing the fact that the reason I gave you these feasts was to show you me, and you've lost me. He's saying, man, it's, it's not about the festival. It's not about the, the cow and it's not about the goat. You're missing the entire point. I don't want you just to kill animals. I don't want you just to shut down the city and party, even though that's what he told them to do. He says, I want you to know me. That's why these have been given. And I think we can understand really uh, what, what it's like when we buy into the ritual rather than what the ritual was there to represent. If we think about the ritual that we talked about earlier in the opening of the message, marriage. When we buy into the ritual rather than what the ritual was there to represent, when we elevate that ritual or that symbol to sacred instead of, instead of seeking after what it really is there to, to teach us, it's a lot like putting all your money and all your energy and all of your, your time into your wedding day and then putting nothing into your marriage as if the wedding day was the pinnacle. 
but it's the beginning. It's there to celebrate what will take place for the next 60 years. The next 60 years is what matters way more than just that one single day. The, the wedding is not an end, end, an end in itself. And when the ritual becomes the end, it's a lot like getting married because you want a wedding, but you don't want a spouse. It would be foolishness to say that, wouldn't it? It'd be foolish to say, I want the wedding. I want all the flowers and the candles and the tuxes and the dresses. I want an, I want an Oprah wedding. I want the, the biggest, grandest, wealthiest, should be in a magazine kind of wedding ever. And you pour all of your resources and all of your time and all of your energy into that wedding. When really, who will care after the wedding is over? The wedding is the beginning. It is the end of nothing. It's the beginning of of everything that's supposed to take place in that relationship. And so what happens, what happens when you elevate ritual to sacred? What happens then is you go to a wedding, but you don't go home married. And it's just a weird deal. It's just a strange thing. All right, let's flip back to Hebrews. Start in verse 11, chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he's, remember, the tabernacle on earth was a symbol. And he's saying, now we're talking about the real presence of God, uh, the real uh, tabernacle, so to speak. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, he's saying these Old Testament high priests would go into the Holy of Holies taking the blood of these bulls and goats Jesus went into the real tabernacle in heaven, only he wasn't taking the blood of animals. He was carrying his own blood shed at the cross into the very Holy of Holies. Now, verses 13 and 14 are going to be very, very large verses in the whole scheme of what we're talking about today. But look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now, now here we go, because, because we're going to get into our, uh, our problem solved. Remember that all that we, that we talked about so far is the, is the, the fact that, that in the tabernacle system, we, we never get our conscience cleared. We never get it clean because uh, we learned what was right. But we were, uh, we're incapable, of, uh, incapable of doing what's right on our own, right? And so it was this vicious cycle where we were doomed to continually sin and come back to the ritual and then go out and sin and come back to the ritual. And we try to get cleansed. We come back to the ritual to save us and it never could. So we're just stuck in this never-ending cycle. Now look at what happens. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So now the scriptures take this whole conversation to a whole new level, the whole, a whole new step, and it calls the tabernacle system dead works. What would happen is that men and women who so desperately wanted to please God, would come continually back to the tabernacle and get involved in this ant pile-like religious activity and rituals, all in order to, to please God, 
all in order to alleviate the weight that they felt on their conscience and the pressure they felt on their soul. And the scriptures are saying that now in Christ, the blood of Christ cleans the conscience. Now, how does that happen? How does that play out in our lives? Well, here's how it happens. And, and listen, this is the greatest news in the universe if you'll hear it today. Let me, let me unpack it like this. Have you ever had that moment at night or, you know, you're lying in bed and in, the, in the, that moment of silence when you finally, you know, or, uh, the kids are asleep, if you've got kids, the TV's off and you're lying there in, that, in the darkness and that silence. And then in that moment, the, the accuser comes. He comes and he starts talking to you about how badly you performed for God that day. Right? You, you know that moment where you go, man, man, I just, I just didn't really pl- pray very well today. And by didn't pray well today, it means didn't pray at all. <laughs> and in that moment when you're going, man, I'm, I'm just not doing this well. I can't figure this out. I'm struggling in this. I, I'm trying to live for Jesus. I'm just not doing well. I, I screwed up this in, in a bad way today. I did this poorly. I, I should do that better. And then all of a sudden, what's happening in response, you, you, you start to go back into the tabernacle by saying, well, I'll make up for it tomorrow, God. I'll offer you some work. I'll offer, I'll do something tomorrow for you. And you're trying to go back to the tabernacle saying, I'll give you another sacrifice tomorrow. That'll make it better. That'll make it better. I, I, I'll bring the goat, Lord. I, I'll bring the bull. I'll, I'll sing the song. I'll make my sacrifice. I'll, I'll make up for it tomorrow. But when you begin to enter the tabernacle, when you begin to think that you can make up for it and think that somehow you can make things right by doing better, then you negate what Christ has purchased for you. Let let me show show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. What Jesus is saying here is, you will never, ever, ever know the fullness of life in me, the wholeness of life in me, the hope of, of, of freedom in me, if you still go to the tabernacle and try to fix yourself. He's saying as long as that first place where the priest would go in and out, as long as it's still standing, then the better promise can't come. And what that means in our lives, as long as I keep going back to the tabernacle and trying to offer him my acts of service, my prayers, what I can do, Lord, I'll go, I'll make better, I'll do better tomorrow. As long as I keep doing that, as long as I'm I'm trying to go back and offer him something in exchange for something better, as long as I'm trying to fix myself, then I'm never ever going to know the fullness of the life that he really wants for me. Until we understand that we can't do anything and that we have nothing to offer him, we'll never find wholeness. What can you, what do you have that he needs? It's just like the bulls and the goats in the Old Testament. He didn't need that. He doesn't, there's nothing that you can give him that he needs. He is God. He is self-sufficient. He does not need anything. However, there are things he wants. And your heart is one of those things. He says, you're never going to understand it when you're trying to fix yourself. And he says, until you understand that you have nothing value to offer to me, then you will never understand my grace and my mercy. If I think 
that somehow I'm good enough that I can give God something and that will appease him, then I don't understand truly that my salvation is because of his grace, not because of my works. Does that make sense? If I think I can offer something, then I'm not fully experiencing his grace. Because his grace is something given that I don't deserve. His mercy is when he, when he says, I'm not going to give you the justice you deserve. His grace is when he says, in, in fact, not only am I not going to give you the justice you deserve, I'm going to adopt you into my family. That's his mercy and his grace. So how does then the blood of Jesus cleanse our guilty conscience when the accuser begins when that all starts in the inward man, how, how does it work? Well, it works like this. You're lying in bed, and here come those thoughts. You didn't pray well today. You're, you struggle with this, man. There is no way that God could be pleased with you. I mean, you, you stink at this. You, you, you could do this so much better. You, you tend to be lazy. You do this. You don't do that. You sh should do better. You should be better. You should do this better. You should do that better. In that moment, when the accuser comes, when we understand Jesus and what he's done, and we understand his grace and his mercy, in that moment when the accuser comes and all those things and all those accusations start flying at us, you know what we do? We say, you're right. You are absolutely right. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. Because there's nothing I can do to change that about me. But in His grace, He can do it. Thank God for Jesus and for His grace and for His mercy because I am a broken human being and without Him, I'm in trouble. I'm in desperation without Him. We become in that moment overwhelmed by the grace that adopted us into the family of God in spite of the fact that we were lawbreakers. And in his kindness, as it says in the Old Testament, he leads us to repentance. The conscience is not cleansed. It, it is cleansed not by our own action, but by the action of Christ. And, and you can't stop the accuser from coming. He's going to come and he's going to make accusations. He's going to tell you how horrible you are and how badly you're failing. In that moment, you don't have to deny reality and say, nope, no, nope, I'm great. But you can say, you know, you're absolutely right, devil. In fact, I'm worse than you think. But in response, I, I belong to Jesus. He is cleansing me. He is changing me. And, you know, any time uh, this, uh, this, this whole idea is, is why arrogant Christianity doesn't make any sense to me at all. Any, anyone who tries to make this us versus them, they're wrong. They're off. You know, if you catch a whiff of that on, on TV or some radio program or some podcast, podcast or something like that, you hear some preacher saying something like, it's us versus them and we're better than them, they're, they're off. There's something wrong. I'm not saying they don't love Jesus. They probably love Jesus, but they're off on this because you're saved by grace through faith so that no man can boast. You've done nothing. You've done nothing. I'm a broken person who will run back to his own vomit every day of my life if Christ doesn't intervene in my life. And so are you. You say, well, I'm an overcomer in Christ. In Christ. 
But on your own, you sure are not. On your own, you're in trouble and so am I. I mean, name a commandment we haven't broken. And I know somebody's like, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, but I'll bet you have been filled with rage. And Jesus said that if you're filled with rage, you're no better off. We're still guilty. I mean, we've all broken the simplest rules in the universe. But what we don't, here's the thing. We don't have to carry the shame and the guilt of the past. That's what clean, cleansing our conscience is all about. What cleans our conscience is not that we have done better. And therefore we can balance the scales out. But it's what cleans the conscience is that Christ did it all. He did it all. That's what cleans our conscience. So, so at night, I get overwhelmed by how beautiful Christ is when, when I get told by the whatever dark forces are in my room about how, and they start telling me how bad I am. And I say, you're right, I am. In, in fact, I'm worse than that. You don't even know because the devil can't read our thoughts and he doesn't know what's going on in my mind. And I'm like, man, you don't even know the half, the half of a devil. I'm worse than that. And that, that, makes it, that makes his grace even more amazing to me. That's why I beg of you, please never buy into the cult of self-esteem in whatever form it may take. Please, you're not a good person, and neither am I. You're not. I mean, no lie. Just think about it. Think about the things that you've thought this week. Think, think about the things that you've, that, you, that you've said this week, and things that you've done or said in private when nobody else could hear, and, you're, and later you're like, man, I'm so glad so-and-so wasn't here to hear that. See, let's just never play games in here. We, we don't come in here clean. We, we come in here dirty. Clean men don't need showers. We come into his presence not because we're clean, but we come into his presence because he makes us clean. No, our, our conscience is clean, not by what we have done or what we have not done, but by, but by what he has done. You're right, I am a sinner. You're right, I, I do screw up. You're right, I do have issues, but praise Jesus. He paid my debt for all of it. He paid my debt for all of it. When you're in Christ, here's the thing. You can live life in the, in the, in the, with no shame because of the past. Oh, oh, the joy that comes from being free from the shame of our past. See, people who are free from the shame of their past sins, they don't pretend like they never did anything wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. That's foolishness. That's arrogance. But, but, but the person who's free from the shame of their past stands up and they says, they say, man, this is who I was. That, uh, the, the, this is what happened. This is, these are the things I did. But this is how Christ protected me this is how he saved me this is how he's changed me and this is who i am today praise jesus and so you tell your past not you know I've, i mean i know you've heard those testimonies where people sort of just glorify all their past sins and make a big deal about that and that's what i'm talking about i'm just talking about saying hey that's the reality that's the truth that's what i've done i'm telling here to you telling you here today i've done things in my past i have lied in in so many ways in my past but I can stand up here without shame. I'm not ashamed of, of what I've done in the past. 
I, I'm, I don't feel guilty for all those things that I've done in the past because I know that Jesus paid my penalty for those things and now they're all wiped away and because of Christ, I'm a new creation. That's not who I am. I used to be a liar and he took that away from my name and now instead of David the liar, I am now known as David the child of God. He gives me a new fresh start. I don't have to... I don't have to live in that shame. It's just, this is my story. This is my song. This is what happened. This is where I was. And as horrible as that is, it just points to the fact that His grace is so amazing. In Jesus, there is hope that you don't have to live ashamed anymore. In Jesus, maybe the guilt that plagues your conscience might finally be lifted from you. In Jesus, we don't have to hide from our spouse anymore. In Jesus, we don't have to hide from our children anymore. So, so maybe relationships that, that will actually begin to work because we're not spending all of our energy and all of our vitality trying to hide our junk. Instead of trying to hide it, we just say, hey, that's what was there. But I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed. I'm not walking in guilt because it's gone now. That's how the conscience gets cleaned. Not by doing stuff to hide it. But, but by embracing the fact that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid my debt. You and I owed a debt for our sin. We owed God. And the only way to pay off that debt was your very life. That's why those bulls and those goats were sacrificed because when sin comes, something has to die. And he, Jesus said, I'll do it. I'll pay his debt. I'll pay his debt. And that's why I can stand and, and live without shame, without guilt. And as a result, now... I leave the tabernacle not made, with, not made with human hands, but I leave that tabernacle of the heavenlies, the presence of God with a clean conscience. No longer a slave to the dead works of the law, the dead works of religion that would have me spend all of my life's energy trying to earn what, was already, what has already been purchased for me. My prayer is that this would fall into the deep places of our hearts today. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women and I thank you for freedom. I thank you for a clean conscience. You did it all, Lord, and we, we praise you for it. And Lord, I, I confess in front of all these people that I am foolhardy and arrogant and ignorant and I, I'm prone to fall into the same junk over and over and over again, but Lord, you are, you are gloriously my king. And so I thank you, Father, that, that, that you love us right now. You, you don't love us some, some future version of us when we get everything figured out, but you love us right now. But you, you love us where we are, but you love us too much to leave us there. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that are in this room right now. God, I pray those that are just so weighted down by a, feeling that they have to give to you or do for you or get things done for you so that they would, they would finally uh, feel better about their life and, 
and be able to cleanse their conscience. But Lord, I pray that they would, they would find freedom from the dead works of religion and they would be able to move into service for you. That we would actually start to do work for you, not to try to earn anything from you, but in response to the fact that we have been set free from feeling we have to do work for you. So, so help us because there is far too much fear, fear that we would fail more morally or fear that our churches wouldn't look healthy or fear that we might even have embarrassing people among us as a church. I confess to you, God, I'm an embarrassing person. And I pray that you would continue to call into this place all kinds of embarrassing stories. Because I think embarrassing stories worship better. So we praise you and we exalt you. We love your cross because you paid our debt there. With heads bowed and eyes closed. There's nobody looking around. Listen, I don't, I don't know. I have no way of knowing what's going on in your heart. Outside of the Spirit of God dropping some nugget, uh, some word of knowledge, there's no way I can know anything like that. But maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. I live with the weight of guilt. I live with the weight of shame on my life. And I want to be free from it. If that's you, I want you to know this, that if you have if you've confessed your sin to Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you still feel that condemnation, I want you to know that is, that's false. That is not from God because Romans 8 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is conviction. The Holy Spirit will convict you and say, hey, don't do this. This is not for you. I've got something better from you. But there's not a condemnation that says there's no hope for you. Maybe today you're here and you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I'm living with guilt and with shame and I want to be free from that. If that's you, would you slip your hand up right where you are so I can pray for you? Is there anybody? Yes, yes. Anybody else? You can put your hand right back down. Yes, several hands. Anybody else? If you're online, you can just put a hand emoji in there. Just let us know that that you want prayer and we'll pray, pray for you as well. Here, here's what I want you to do. I, 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 I want you to pray, but I'm, I don't want to... Today, I don't want to give you the words to say. Because sometimes it just feels like, well, I just say, if I say the right formula, then I'll get it. That's not what... I don't think that's what needs to happen. I just feel like right now, in your own words, as I pray for you, I want you just to just go to Him and say, Lord... I've been trying to earn something and deal with, to try to deal with this guilt by doing right things. And I just want the peace of God that passes understanding that I know I can live without shame. I can live without guilt. And if there are things in your life that you need to confess, if there are sins that are there, deal with it. Just confess it. He said, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just confess it and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I confess my sin to you and repent of it, which just means that you turn your mind around and you begin to think a different way and say, this is not what I want. I want you, Jesus. But I want to pray for you. And you pray in your own words, those prayers. And I want to pray that the peace of God that passes 
all human understanding would begin to guard your heart and your mind. That you'd begin to, in those moments when those thoughts and those accusations come, that you'd begin to respond by saying, yeah, that's true, that's, that's, that's me. But Jesus paid that debt. And you would turn it into a moment of worship. Thanking Him for what He has done and what He is still doing in your life. Father, right now, you saw those that raised their hands and Lord, they are they're dealing with something that you've, you've come to set them free from. Jesus, you came to clean, to cleanse our conscience. And the way that happens, Lord God, is not by going back to the tabernacle and con constantly offering new things and saying, I'll do better next time. But God, the way that happens is just by simply surrendering to the reality that I have nothing to offer. There's nothing I can do. But Jesus has already done it all. And Lord, that we begin to learn how to just throw ourselves on your mercy. And, the, and when that accuser comes and when those accusations begin to fly through our minds, that we would say, yes, yes, that's right, it's true. And yet, he still loves me. And yet, he paid my debt. And yet, he hasn't given up on me. And yet, he is shaping me in spite of those things. And God, that that moment would turn from a moment of guilt and shame and accusation into a moment of worship. Lord, help us as much as our human frail human minds can, I pray that you would help us to begin to grasp the depth and the width and the height of your grace and your love for us. Just help us, God. I pray, God, that you would just give the peace of God that passes understanding to every follower of Christ in this place. And God, and please help us, Lord, not to take this to say that we can live however we want. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what your word says. Lord, help us not to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we are doing something that displeases you or something that doesn't honor your name. But God, we listen to that moment, but instead of living in, sh in shame and guilt over those things, that God, that we would get them under the blood. We'd confess those things and leave them behind. Lord, I pray that as we prepare to leave this place, that we would just walk in the, an awareness of your mercy, of your grace, your kindness that leads us to, a, to, to repentance. God, that it's not your anger that turns us, it's, it's, your, it's your grace, it's your kindness. And when we remember that, Lord God, we repent not out of fear, but we repent because we grow to love you that much more. And we say, I don't want that anymore. I want, I want a God that loves me like that. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to walk in that grace and to offer that grace to everybody around us. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.